Good morning. This morning's scripture text comes from Matthew, chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 13 through 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the word of the Lord. I'll ask you to take your copy of God's word once again and turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. And as you're turning there once again, let me just uh, take this opportunity to wish you a very Merry Christmas, uh, both to you and your family, and uh, thank you very much for joining us for this service of worship. It's a a really special treat, I think, to have Christmas coincide with the Lord's Day. uh, It's not the most common thing, but we love it when it happens because uh, how appropriate is it to uh, worship on this day. Um, this, is, this is what this day is all about. We want to celebrate our Savior's birth, and uh, no better way to do that than to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ and to join our voices and our hearts together. And this is exactly what we find the angels and the shepherds and the wise men doing that very first Christmas, and so we follow them in this very right response to the goodness of God and the gift of his Son. Trust that you've been blessed already by the, uh, the worship uh, that's taken place here at Grace Baptist Church. And I imagine that coming here this morning might have been uh, particularly difficult for the kids. I know most of them are now uh, maybe downstairs, but you know maybe some of you left your house even before you got to open presents. I remember how excruciating that can be. But it is a helpful reminder, isn't it, uh, for us that there really is nothing more exciting than Jesus. And if you have him, there is nothing that you could ever need or want more. And um, so it's a good exercise for us to come right away on a Christmas morning and celebrate Jesus. We want to take a few minutes this morning to learn a little bit more about Jesus so that in knowing him we might treasure him more. I remember when I was a kid, one Christmas, I got a kaleidoscope. And in the early 80s, you know, a kaleidoscope was the thing to get. It was the fidget spinner of the day, I guess. And you could, you could spend hours looking through that thing. And with every rotation, you could see a, a new, beautiful, brightly colored geometric pattern. And that's how it is with Jesus. You know, with every turn of the page in Scripture, we can see our Lord in a different and beautiful view. And uh, a key factor in the beauty that you see through a kaleidoscope is the symmetry. And symmetry also accounts for much of the beauty that we find in Scripture and much of the beauty that we find in our Savior. 
So, for example, when Jesus is introduced to us in the New Testament, we see in his person and through his work a sort of mirror image of what was foretold in the old. We see this especially in Matthew's gospel. And Matthew is writing to a largely Jewish audience, um, to a people that would be very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, but who also might be pretty skeptical about the claims that this Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. So Matthew is eager to, to prove from the very scriptures that they prized and that they treasured. He, he wants to prove to his audience that Jesus is exactly who all the law and the prophets testified about. If you've been reading, um, we've kind of jumped into things midstream here, but if you've been reading the early chapters of Matthew, say in, in your Advent reading, you'll no doubt have noticed a recurring theme, a sort of pattern to the way that he writes. And at the end of every little narrative section, Matthew says something like this. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet or something to that effect. And then he goes on to quote an Old Testament scripture. And what I'm saying is that this shows a beautiful symmetry between the two testaments and shows our Savior in the most mesmerizing kind of light. And this morning I'd like to show you just one of these sections. It's found at the end of the Christmas story. In chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, the portion that Caleb read a few minutes ago. And I don't know how good your memory is, but this is actually a continuation of the portion that we looked at last year, the story of the wise men. And not only that, but the, the section that we're going to look at today is going to function handily enough as a preview of the series that we're going to begin next month, Lord willing which is to work our way through the book of Exodus. And I think that this is very uh, handy for us to, I think it's important for us to know right from the get-go how the life and ministry of Jesus mirrors the experience of Israel. And as we look through the book of Exodus, we'll, we'll want to keep in mind that um, the point ultimately isn't going to be about Israel or about how to live morally, or that sort of thing. All of these scriptures are going to be pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's enough of a preamble. Let's just get into it. Let's look at Jesus' escape to and from Egypt. And let's look at this uh, passage under two headings. We'll see first, the flight, and second, the fulfillment. The flight and the fulfillment. First then, the flight. And okay, you know how sometimes you open a present and there's actually two different presents in that one box? You know, like a new shirt and a DVD. It's just, you know, your mom wants to package things nice and, and save some boxes. Well, that's what I'm giving to you under this first point, okay? It looks like one point, but you open it up and actually you'll discover two subpoints for you. I want to show you first the direction and second the destruction. 
Okay, so that's where we're headed. Let's just get into it. Let's orient ourselves, first of all, in the Christmas story. And when we come to chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus has already been born, and the Magi have already visited him after making a stop in Jerusalem um, to question and then to be questioned by Herod. And we're not exactly sure how much time has elapsed for all of these events. Many scholars believe that the visit of the Magi uh, might have happened months after the birth of Jesus. I'm not exactly sure. What I am sure of is that for Matthew, the evangelist who's writing this gospel, the, these events follow one another in rapid fashion. At least for the purpose of his narrative, he's collapsing all of these events into a continuous narrative so that we're left with the impression that very soon after Jesus is born, he's on the road. I'm reminded of a line from that Malcolm Gite poem that Barb Lehman read for us last night. The line that goes, even as we sing our final carol, his family is up and on that road, fleeing the wrath of someone else's quarrel, glancing behind and shouldering their load. Like I was saying earlier, I, I think you kids maybe understand better what this is like. You barely got your presents open this morning. Maybe you didn't even get your presents open this morning. And your mom and your dad are hurrying you to come to church on time. I, I have a hard time remembering um, all of the different Christmases that were on a Sunday when I was a kid. But I do remember very distinctly the feeling of of wanting to, to play with my, these brand new toys, but then I'd have to put them away back under the tree so that we could go to church. Or if it wasn't on a Sunday, I'd still have to do that so that we could go over the river and through the woods to grandma's house. And that's excruciating to just have to very quickly put that away and then be gone on the road. Had to rush to get traveling. In, in a similar way, notice here that Jesus hardly gets to be a baby, if I could put it that way. From the perspective of, of this narrative, Jesus barely hits the manger before he's made to hit the road. In flight, he's, he's fl it's not just a friendly visit to a grandma. It's fleeing as a fugitive. It turns out that this is a very fitting beginning to Jesus' life. He's going to have a very uncomfortable life. It's going to be a life on the road. He's going to be despised and rejected. Very, very often he's going to have to withdraw from certain places because of his enemies. And all of this for love's sake, for our sake. J.C. Ryle helps us understand some of the practical implications of this when he writes... The Lord Jesus is just the Savior that suffering and sorrowful people need. He knows well what we mean when we tell him in prayer of our troubles. He can sympathize with us when we cry to him under cruel persecution. Let us keep nothing back from him. Let us make him our bosom friend. Let us pour out our hearts before him. He has had great experience of affliction. Here's something else to notice about the flight. So here's the first of the, the two presents in this particular box. 
Notice the direction. The direction. Jesus and his parents make this flight under divine direction. Verse 13 reads, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. By now, Matthew's readers uh, will recognize another one of these angelic appearances and recognize it as one of the common ways uh, for God to direct his people at this time. This is direct divine revelation, which gives very clear, specific instructions about what to do and where to go and how long to stay there. The family is to stay there until they receive further direction. So this is a family under divine direction at every point. And what we see in this verse reminds me of of a game that the youth sometimes play at Camp Impact. And I'm not sure what the game's called. I'm sure it's called something crazy if I know Camp Impact. But the, the gist of it is that one person is blindfolded and has to make their way through various obstacles and their partner is not blindfolded and that person gets to stand on a picnic table or a chair and then shout directions at the blindfolded person three steps to the right okay now move forward no no stop back go to the left a little bit you know that sort of a thing from his vantage point joseph is essentially blind He has no way of knowing about Herod and about his nefarious plans. But God knows. God knows from his heavenly vantage point, from his place of sovereign rule and authority, our God knows and sees everything. And thus he's able to direct his people safely through every obstacle. And Joseph has proven himself, even by this point, at being very good at following directions. Some of you dads, um, maybe this morning or this afternoon, will demonstrate that you're not good at following directions. When your kid brings you the box and, you know, that, that cover pamphlet that tells you how to run the thing, many of us are gonna just toss that aside. But Joseph has proven himself to be very good at taking directions from from his God. He's a man of obedience. And you can see this, I think, by the language of verse 14. Look there with me. Look at verse 14. You'll see that it corresponds perfectly to the direction that he's given in verse 13. Right down to the words. Joseph does exactly what God has directed him to do, and he does it immediately. It's the language of obedience. And in this way, it seems to me, Joseph shows us the key to navigating difficult times. Even difficult times that we might not even realize that we're facing. The key, when you're facing these difficult times, and I know many of you are, even right now, the key is to face these times under divine direction. By by yielding to the perspective 
of a sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning? That's what I mean by under divine direction. We need to understand, first of all, just how limited our own perspective is, our, our earthly vantage point. We're basically, friends, let's be honest, as good as blind to all of the obstacles that we face. And in the end, all that's asked of us is that we trust and obey. We sing that in that uh, old-timey hymn. And there's so much truth it's in that simplicity. That's what we're called to do is trust and obey. Now, these days, I hope you understand, the Lord typically doesn't direct his people through angelic appearances. But we have the ultimate source of divine direction in his word. And who, who knows what 2023 has in store for any of us? That's a rhetorical question. And the obvious answer is God does. God does. And he means to direct us through it by his word and by his spirit. And his d divine power has already granted to us everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's 1 Peter 1.3. And as we head into an uncertain new year, and when I say the word uncertain, I mean uncertain to us, let us make this resolution what he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Well, you've already uh, caught me packing multiple presents in this one box of this first point, but I've got more surprises in store for you. And that is that this, one of these double presents is itself a double present. If it's a DVD, this is a two-pack. This is a double feature, okay? Because there's another way that we can think about that word direction. Not just in terms of a command, but also in terms of a compass. So, so Joseph might ask, well, what direction should we go? And the Lord responds, to Egypt. Now, in the present case, Egypt is a great place for an Israelite and his family to flee to. For starters, it's relatively close. It's easily accessible. Um, they're hospitable to um, refugees, to foreigners. But most importantly, this is a place that fell outside of Herod's jurisdiction. So there was, there was safety here. Herod had no authority in Egypt to do what he desired to do, what he was determined to do. But to go in the direction of Egypt, of course, has wider significance in Scripture. From, from time to time in Israel's history, Egypt was a, a place of, of refuge, a place to which the people of God who were in danger could escape. In Genesis, you might remember, we saw Abraham and Sarah fleeing to Egypt. We saw Hagar, who's from Egypt, but she is trying desperately to get back there when she encounters trouble with Sarah. And most memorably, perhaps, we, we saw Jacob and his sons fleeing to Egypt for food 
during a prolonged famine. And then, because of the favor that their brother Joseph and their, their son Joseph had curried with the Pharaoh in that land, the family establishes themselves in Egypt. They're living in the best part of the land. So Egypt is a, is a refuge at this point. Now, of course, there's more to that story. But for now, I think it's enough for us to recognize and to remember that Egypt is a great place to escape if you're a refugee. Okay, that leads us to the next D. Why? Why did Jesus and his parents have to escape to Egypt? And the answer is destruction. Destruction. And here again, you're going to find that this is a double present because there's actually two destructions in this passage. The first is an intended destruction. The Lord reveals through the angel the reason why this flight is necessary. And I think it's worth recognizing before we get into the answer. Let's just admit that, that why that question is one of our favorite questions to ask. And not just when we're a two or three year old and we're full of curiosity, but maybe even more so when we're grown and when we're made to face very difficult, very hard providences from the hand of the Lord. You know, the Lord directs our, our steps onto exceedingly difficult pathways and we always want to know why. Trust me, I understand the impulse to ask that, but we need to understand that God is under no obligation ever to reveal all of his reasons why. He, he's, the, he's the sovereign Lord. He, he doesn't have to give an answer to anyone. He, he, he does what he will, and it's all for his, good, uh, for his glory. But sometimes, sometimes, he is very kind to answer us and to give us reasons why. Like in this case, he says in the second half of verse 13, he says for, and that little word indicates that a reason is about to come, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Herod intends to destroy this child, Jesus. And we know from history that Herod is one of the most paranoid people that has ever walked the planet. He was not above snuffing out the life of any potential competitor. Even if it was his own flesh and blood, they were just gone, even on a suspicion that they might want to usurp his authority and his throne. Now that's him just kind of as a standard practice but now, through the wise men and through the scribes and the chief priests that he assembled to learn more about what might be going on in Bethlehem, Herod's learned that Jesus is a very special child. He's, he's learned that this Jesus is destined to be a king, even king over Israel. The prophecy, he was told, says that this would be a ruler who would shepherd his people Israel. And publicly, Herod acknowledges that Jesus is someone who is worthy of worship, and he says that he wants to join in that worship. But privately, you understand, 
Herod has already begun to think about how he might destroy him. Now, I think it's very encouraging to know how all of these puzzle pieces fit together. I, I think it's encouraging if we, if we just think about the timing for a second. In the text, we don't learn about Herod's plans regarding his intended destruction until verse 16. It's actually even outside of the passage that we've chosen. But already... In verse 13, the Lord is directing Joseph around that intended destruction. Do you see that God speaks about what Herod is about to do? In other words, the Lord God is ahead of the enemy. I don't even want to say he's one step ahead, because none of this is taking our sovereign God by surprise. And he is acting even before the enemy acts. God is acting. He is counteracting even before the action. And brothers and sisters, you who might today be fearing foreign and domestic governments who have destructive intentions, you need to know this, that while the nations rage, while The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. How encouraging is it to know what God's response is? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. The people's plot in vain because the Lord is way ahead of the game. Now, I haven't talked to Jariah yet today to ask him uh, what he got for Christmas, but if I had to guess what kind of presents Jariah got, I'm guessing it's something related to Rubik's Cubes or chess. And we know our friend Jariah to be a puzzle guy, a strategy guy. He can think a couple of moves ahead, which serves him very well when he's playing you at his board or when he's working on his cube. Jariah is is the best that I know, but he's nothing compared to the Lord. Isn't it so comforting to know that our sovereign God is a chess master and he's thinking millions of moves ahead? There's no scenario that you can face that leaves God, you know, scratching his head or stroking his beard as the timer clicks, he, he's way ahead of the game. Now, speaking of a puzzle, I'll give you one. I mentioned there's two destructions in this passage. Can you find the other one? The first one was an intended destruction. The second one is an actual destruction. It's subtle, I'll grant you that, But it's in there, and I think it's in there for our encouragement. Verse 15. The family remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. There's your actual destruction. Again, in verse 19, we read, When Herod died. King Herod who intended to destroy 
his rival Jesus, is himself destroyed. And destroyed in spectacular fashion. Listen to this description of Herod's final days. And this comes from a Jewish historian named Josephus. And uh, he gleaned this information from Nicholas of Damascus, who was Herod the Great's um, constant companion. Here's Herod's final days. Quote, the disease then seized upon his whole body and distracted it by various torments. For he had a slow fever, and the itching of the skin of his whole body was insupportable. He suffered also from continuous pains in his colon. And there were swellings on his feet like those of a person suffering from dropsy, while his abdomen was inflamed, and his privy member was so putrefied as to produce worms. Besides this, he could breathe only in an upright posture, and then only with difficulty. And he had convulsions in all his limbs, so that the diviner said that the, his disease must have been punishment. Make no mistake, God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. If there's any contest regarding who's the greatest king, it's settled by this simple fact that Herod is dead and Jesus is alive. I love how Malcolm Gite's refugee poem concludes. He says, but every Herod dies and comes alone to stand before the lamb upon the throne. Now, if you need more evidence that our God is sovereign over all of these events, you're going to get it under our second point here, which is the fulfillment. The fulfillment. In verse 15, we have Matthew's editorial explanation for why he's included this story about the flight to Egypt. He says that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by his prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So we come right back to our why question. Why was the son of God made to flee to Egypt? And we've already seen one answer on one level. It was to flee the wrath and the wicked designs of his rival Herod. Yes, all of that is is certainly true, but there's, there's a deeper, there's a more fundamental explanation for this event. It happened in order to, and, and that's really what the, the little word to means in verse 15, in order to, for the purpose of fulfillment. In this case, the fulfillment of prophecy Words that were spoken some 750 years earlier by the prophet Hosea. Words that refer to the Exodus, which took place something like 1,300 or 1,400 years earlier. And for all of this to work, of course, that means that the Lord has to have been directing things to this point for a very, very long time. This must mean that all of this is part of his master plan that he's been executing down to the most finest of all details since the world began. All of, all of human history has been moving 
relentlessly to the point that we celebrate this morning. This is no insignificant thing that we do. The incarnation of the Son of God, the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah, this is what it is all about. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of every scripture that has ever been written. And he is the fulfillment of every promise that has ever been made. All of these find their yes and their amen in him. This is why walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus could say, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? These things had to happen for fulfillment's sake. And then he proceeds to open up the word of God to them. And the text says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And maybe, as Jesus opened up Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, maybe, as he's reading to these disciples, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Maybe Jesus opened up that verse as well. You see, because through the mouth of the prophet Hosea, the Lord is seeking to appeal to his wayward and rebellious people. He does this in that prophecy. He does this in some very um, memorable ways. He has Hosea, for example, marry a prostitute who is unfaithful to him as an acted out parable of what Israel is like. He's reminding them God is when he calls them uh, his son, his child, he's reminding them that from their infancy as a nation, he has been a father to them. He has loved them and provided for them and cared for them. And the greatest demonstration of his love for Israel up to this point is when with a, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he delivered them from their slavery in Egypt. In a sense, what was going on there is he's, he's beckoning his son Israel to come out of that land of oppression, and he brings them then into a land of promise. The Lord establishes Israel, his son, as a nation. The Lord enters into a covenant with that people and blesses them. And his intention in all of this is that they, in turn, would be faithful to the covenant and that they would be a blessing to the nations. But the 1,400 years or so since have demonstrated that Israel has failed to do and be all of these things. They've broken the covenant time and time again. They, despite their emancipation, they have walked right back into sin and into slavery. In short, what, what can we say except Israel has proven themselves to be an unfaithful son? In every respect. But now we're reading in Matthew 2, verses 13 to 15, of a child, God's son, who initially flees to Egypt for protection, and then gets called back out of Egypt when Herod dies. 
And Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that all of this happened in fulfillment of what was written in Hosea 11. You know, as a pastor, um, I get all kinds of mail and emails, you know, trying to sell me and ultimately try to sell you on taking a tour of the Holy Land. And, uh, you know, walk the footsteps of Jesus, the advertisements say. And that has certain appeal to it. And it's great. I've got absolutely no problem with visiting Israel. But here's what's really interesting to me. What we see in passages like this is Jesus walking in the footsteps of Israel. He's, he's retracing the steps of that people, except at every point where they failed, he succeeds. Israel flees to Egypt. Jesus flees to Egypt. Israel's called out of Egypt in, in the Exodus. Jesus is called out of Egypt. Israel, Israel spends time in the wilderness, and they're described as being loathsome to God. Jesus spends time in the wilderness, and he resists temptation. And it's said about him that he is God's son with whom God is well pleased. Do you see? At every single turn, Jesus is succeeding where Israel has colossally failed. Israel as a representative of humanity. This is where we, all of us, have colossally failed. Jesus succeeds. And this qualifies the Son of God to walk all the way to the cross where he will die on behalf of his people, where he will die on our behalf, we who have been unfaithful, we who, because of our sin and our stubborn rebellion, have been loathsome to a holy and righteous God. We are, by the faithfulness of Christ, pardoned by the death of a perfect substitute, that, that lamb that God himself provided. And, and by faith in this son, all of our sins are forgiven. And as, as Jason prayed, we're, we're translated out of darkness and into marvelous light, into the kingdom of this son. And friends, if you are here today and have not yet bowed the knee to the Savior in repentance and in faith, we... We urge you to do that right now. Right now. There's, there's nothing more important for you to do than to humble yourself and bow in his presence and flee to this great Savior. Experience for yourself a greater exodus than what you read about in the Old Testament. Experience full release from your slavery to sin. In your bondage to Satan, enter into the marvelous kingdom of this beloved son. And there'll be folks up at the, on the front pew that would love to show you Jesus and, and talk to you and pray with you and show you how you can follow him starting today. And ultimately, this is the only way to have a truly Merry Christmas. This holiday is all about our Savior. This Bible is all about the Savior. 
Human history is all about the Savior. Again, as we have prayed and as we read in Scripture, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen?